Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the NoSilicast podcast, hosted at podfeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever so slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, December 6, 2020, and this is show number 813. You know, normally I like to write you epic tomes where I dig deep into some arcane subject, or at least I tell a long rambling tale, but this week I've got some short and to-the-point segments instead. Even Security Bits was relatively short this week, but Bart and I managed to entertain ourselves, so I think you'll enjoy it. In the show, I'm going to be telling you about a new update to an application called Feeder 4, and that's the application I use to create the podcast feed. That's basically the magic that delivers the show to you every week. I do it with Feeder. Anyway, I caused kind of a mess with my feeds, and I got Steve Harris, the developer of Feeder, in a chat with me to untangle what I'd done. While we were chatting and cleaning things up, he idly mentioned that you can share subscriptions and in-app purchases now in Apple's family sharing for the app stores. I believe my exact response to him was, way to bury the lead. You know, we've been talking for like 20 minutes and he just suddenly just idly drops that. And I, I was blown away by this. He said they dropped the news that it was coming during WWDC, but I had never heard that they were doing that. So to be clear, what we're talking about is in the past, if you got a subscription for software such as Steve's iOS Keep It mobile app, and Keep It is kind of like an Evernote substitute. If you, Anyway, if you got a subscription for it, only you could use it, even if you had family sharing because it was a subscription. Likewise, if there was, say, an in-app purchase like maybe a game level or filters on a photo app that you did in-app purchases, you couldn't share those with your family members either. That has definitely stopped me from doing certain subscriptions to know that it's only for me. And if Steve wants to use it or one of my kids, we can't all use it for that fee. As I was showing my delight at the news from Steve, he started poking around and he discovered that the app developer has to enable it. He wondered whether other developers even knew about it. So he took a screenshot and he tweeted it out after we finished chatting. He asked me if I'd add some signal boost to his tweet to make sure developers knew they have to turn it on, so I did, and I requested the signal boost from my followers as well. I slacked and Facebooked it with the same request. Within less than a half an hour of he, of he and I tweeting it, Mac Rumors picked it up, and shortly after that, Federico Vitici of Mac Stories retweeted him, even with his screenshot, and after that, everyone knew that this was happening. Now, I'm telling you all of this because if your favorite app gets family sharing of in-app purchases, I plan on taking 50% credit. If it doesn't, contact the developer to make sure they know that it can be done. You may also have to enable sharing of new subscriptions on your devices. You'll find a toggle in your account settings, and I sent a link, I put a link in the show notes to family sharing for app store subscriptions in Mac Rumors, the article they wrote after Steve wrote his tweet. Well, it's been killing me holding in this particular secret for months, but I got to be the guest on the latest episode of the Code Newbie podcast with Saran Yitbarik. Code Newbie interviews developers about their coding journey. She draws out their guests about like how they learned to code, what bad and good advice they got along the way, and a lot about how they feel about coding. It's a it's kind of a touchy feely thing. It's not about language. It's about what does it feel like and how did you learn and that sort of thing. The diversity of our audience, uh, sorry, of the people she interviews is absolutely fantastic. So you really start to be able to paint a picture of what coding is like by learning how all these different kinds of people got to where they are today. 
they're in different, you know, they learn different languages. They're from different diverse backgrounds. Um, she even recently had a guy on who uh, is a convicted felon. He was convicted of murder and his coding journey. That was one, probably one of the most fascinating ones. Anyway, the one thing I noticed was that they hadn't really covered what it's like to learn to code later in life. So I volunteered my own story and they decided to interview me. As Alistair Jenks pointed out, you may have heard some or even all of my stories on my background and my journey to become a coder, but I think it's a really cool interview, so I hope you'll go listen over at codenewbie.org. On Chit Chat Across the Pond this week, it's another installment of Programming by Stealth, and in this part of our mini-series on learning the version control system Git, Bart dips our proverbial toe into branching. Branches allow us as developers to work on bugs or feature enhancements in a separate place from our stable code, and then only merge the code back in when the bugs are squashed or the features are stable. We don't get much practice in this installment, but rather Bart talks to us about the idea of having a strategy for when to branch and how to name your branches in order to prevent chaos. He gives us some very simple and yet very difficult to adhere to strategies, and then he takes us through more rigorous strategies that will actually be easier to follow. He emphasizes that he's not telling us which strategy to follow, but rather to have a strategy. We do a few small examples from the command line, but we get to open our Git GUI clients like Git Kraken and SourceTree and see how the commands we're typing are graphically represented in the clients. It's a good illustration of what Bart has been promising us that the GUI clients are doing exactly what the command line is doing. You can find Bart's tutorial show notes over at pbs.bartofficer.net. And if you'd like to support Bart on Patreon, I would like you to go to patreon.com slash ltpod. And don't forget to search for Programming by Stealth in your podcatcher of choice. Well, you might notice a change in my microphone right here, and that's because my audio interface failed in the middle of doing the live show. So we've been having a lot of fun doing some uh, sausage making here. But if you notice a change in the tone, I'm not sure. It might sound exactly the same, but I have moved from the Apollo Solo Thunderbolt 3 interface to the Shure MVI USB interface that I used to use. So maybe it sounded exactly the same, and I didn't even need to tell you. But let's keep going. I entitled this next article, Increase Engagement on Twitter Using Image Descriptions, partly to be clickbaity, but you know what? Also because this tip is going to do exactly that. If you'd like to reach a larger audience with your tweets, then how about making your images available for those using screen readers? Maybe you think it's not worth the trouble because A, it's too few people to worry about, and B, it's got to be way too hard. Well, let's get rid of the first myth. According to the World Health Organization, there are 30 sorry, 39 million people who are blind in the world today. Another 246 million are visually impaired. So yeah, a lot of people you aren't reaching today if you don't add descriptions to your images. Now on to the second part. I'm going to confess something. I thought it was too hard. I think it did used to be hard, but it's trivially easy now. I'm embarrassed that I haven't been doing it before, but I figured if I confessed and I taught you how to do it, then I would have to finally get around to doing it myself. Now, I do want to cut myself some slack. I was talking to Bart today about this tip, and he said it's only been in the last few months that this has become as easy as it is. I'm going to walk you through a couple of the apps on iOS and the Mac, and if you're using a different app or a different operating system, I'm sure you'll be able to translate and get this to work for you. I am not joking when I say this is super easy. It's only a matter of recognizing the words to know and what to look for. It's important to note that your image descriptions will not show by default for people not using screen readers. 
It'd be really lame if you post like a funny picture or a meme and everyone cited also saw your text saying, this is a guy looking backwards at a girl while holding hands with his girlfriend and the caption says, blah, blah, blah. That would take the fun out of the whole thing of the meme. But you do want to write that for the people who can't see it. In web pages, the term for the description screen readers can see is alt tags, which means alternative text. Some apps use this term, but some use more human-friendly terms. But let's jump in straight away and talk through the super quick and easy steps to add text descriptions to your images so screen reader people can play along. The official Twitter app for Mac and iOS makes it super obvious how to add an alt tag. When you add an image, there will be a title overlay in the bottom right of the image. You'll see a a paintbrush, which lets you add, you know, like dopey filters. I hate filters. But right next to that is a little black button with the white letters plus alt. That's what you're looking for. Now, in an attempt to be helpful, and it is kind of helpful, the Twitter app pops up a window entitled Add Descriptions, where they explain what these descriptions are and why you'd want to add them. They say, quote, good descriptions are concise, but but present what's in your photos accurately enough to understand their context. I think that's really great that they give you a little tip there. At this point, you're going to see two buttons. One says, sure, but one says, no, thanks. I get why you'd want to let people back out if they hit alt uh, plus alt accidentally, but I sort of wish they didn't give people the option to back out. Once you tweet an image with an alt tag on each device you own, the Twitter app for that device will remember you know what you're doing and won't bother you with that pop-up again. After that, it's clean sailing. Your cursor will be blinking in a field that says, describe this photo, and it shows that you have used up zero of 1,000 characters. Now, you probably don't want to type 1,000 characters, but I think it's there to just let you know you're not limited to the 280 characters like you are in a tweet. They also have a link to learn more about alt text, which is a nice touch. Once you've written your description, tap done in the upper right and get on with writing your witty tweet. To recap, on the official Twitter app, after you pop in your image, tap the Alt Plus button, type your description, tap done. Come on, how easy is that? That wasn't hardly any work. All right, let's switch gears here. I'm a big fan of TweetBot on macOS and iOS and iPadOS. They don't make it quite as obvious as Twitter does, but it's actually still really, really easy. You don't have that sure or no thanks page to work with the first time, but that's okay. Drop in an image into TweetBot just like you normally would and simply tap on the image. You'll see three options, remove image, view image, and below that it says add image description. I kind of think it's good that it's in plain speak, but you don't get any education on why you'd want to add an image description and what will happen when you do. Next, you'll see Media Description, where you can type, and below that, on the macOS version, they say, Image descriptions should describe the contents of your image or video. I don't think that's even vaguely helpful to explain what you should write and how you should be concise but descriptive. I don't know, maybe I don't hate that pop-up on Twitter as much as I did before. Interestingly, on iOS, they at least say, Add a description for the visually impaired. So TweetBot has two different messaging things there. So to recap, on TweetBot for Mac, after you pop in your image, tap on the image. Select Add Image Description, type your description, tap Save. That is literally all you have to do. Now, I always like to test things I'm teaching, and I thought I had made a mistake in TweetBot. After I added the description of me wearing crazy elf leggings into a tweet, I went ahead and posted it. I turned on VoiceOver on my phone, and I, quote-unquote, looked at the image with VoiceOver. And what I heard surprised me. It said, image, adult costume, door. 
Now, technically, that was correct. It was an image. I am an adult, and interpreting my crazy leggings as a costume was pretty astute, and I was indeed standing in front of a door. But I had added an alt tag, so why did it figure it out on its own instead of reading out what I'd written? Well, I switched over to the Twitter app on iOS, and it read my real description that I had added. That got me thinking that those using screen readers shouldn't use TweetBot because it doesn't read the real descriptions. But then again, until enough of us add descriptions... Maybe that's a good plan. The bottom line is it's shockingly easy to add descriptions to your images, so why not add them? We spent all this time carefully crafting the tweet itself to fit inside the limit and to try to sound clever. Why not throw in an extra 15 seconds to give at least 39 million more people the opportunity to recognize your cleverness? Now, don't tell anyone, but sometimes I put Easter eggs in my image descriptions. Why not have a little fun while you're at it? The app I'd like to talk about today is not for everybody, and in fact, probably 99% of the NoSilicast listeners will never need it, but it's an app that is 100% critical to the fact that you're able to hear this podcast right now, so at least you have a horse in this race. The app I'd like to talk about is the new version 4 update to Feeder from Reinvented Software. In order to understand why Feeder is awesome, and Feeder 4 in particular is a great upgrade, we need to talk about the problem it solves. As a podcast listener, you subscribe to the shows. That ability to subscribe depends on a plain text file, often called the RSS file or RSS feed or podcast feed. RSS stands for really simple syndication, and it's the magic behind all of the feed readers for blogs and for podcasts. The only difference between a blog feed file and a podcast feed file is that the podcast includes a link on the internet to an enclosure, which is usually an audio or video file. But it could actually be anything. You could enclose an image or a PDF. When I first started podcasting back in, what was it, 1863, I typed this feed file in by hand. Now, I'm not sure when I discovered Feeder, but in more recent history, I've been able to use it because it's a fabulous GUI application that creates the feed file for me automatically. Not lo- no longer did I have to type in the secret code of RSS, which is a lot like HTML in some ways, and do things like figure out the exact number of bytes in the audio enclosure file and type it painstakingly in by hand. For example, last week's episode of the NoSilicast was 94,106,478 bytes long, but I don't have to know that anymore. If you want to see what I have to type by hand, you can actually look at it. You can open Firefox or Chrome or Edge, and I've got a link in the show notes to the exact URL. If you put that in Chrome, Firefox, or Edge, you can see all of the text of that little file that does all of the magic. This doesn't work in Safari. That browser tries to make sense of the link and open a podcatcher for you. That's a smarter option, but that's not what we're looking for right here. With Feeder, I don't have to do all of the heavy lifting of formatting that file and knowing things like how long the the, uh, episode was and typing all that in. Instead, I spend my time doing more value-added tasks like writing the show notes you see for each episode in your podcatcher. I love that Feeder lets me type in both HTML or Markdown, and I can even mix and match within one episode. Another huge benefit to me of Feeder is it makes it super easy for me to create the full Chit Chat Across the Pond feed and the two sub-feeds for Chit Chat Across the Pond Lite and Programming by Stealth. First, I create the episode in the main Chit Chat feed, no matter which one it is. Then I test to make sure it worked by opening a podcatcher, and I verify the episode was delivered as expected. 
then all I need to do is drag the episode from the main chit-chat feed either into the light or PBS feed, depending on what flavor I've done that week, and then I hit the publish button. The only tricky part is on the Programming by Stealth feed. I need to remember to change the title to remove the CCATP part at the beginning, and I almost always remember to do that. One of the problems with starting a podcast 128 years ago is that it's hard to break out of the old ways of doing things and realize there's easier ways to do things these days. I'm not one of those, I've always done it this way, so leave me alone with your newfangled ideas type of person. It's just that I don't realize sometimes how much easier things could be than the way I've always done them. It turns out Feeder has had a capability for a very long time that I didn't know it could provide. But once I found out it could do it, I still procrastinated on on implementing it. Let me explain the way I used to do things. Feeder creates the text file, which is that RSS feed I talked about. And I said it points at the enclosure file, which is the audio file of the actual podcast. But that audio file doesn't live on my server with the RSS feed. I store the audio files on a server owned by a company called Libsyn. To get the audio file from my Mac to the Libsyn server, I use FTP, also known as File Transfer Protocol, with a tool called Transmit from Panic Software. Now, Panic is an awesome FTP tool, and I use it for lots of other stuff, but since my audio files always go to the exact same drop location on Libsyn servers, I was able to create what's called a droplet. That's a small file under which I can drop the audio file and Transmit whooshes it up to Libsyn without me having to launch Transmit. I put the droplet in the menu bar of my Finder windows, so it's always right there when I need it. Now, once I've dropleted my audio file to Libsyn, I go to Feeder and I enter the URL where the audio file will go. It's long and annoying and has a redirect through Blueberry that helps me do some metrics on downloads. As long and as annoying as it is, at least it's predictable, especially since there's a pattern to my naming convention on the files. I wanted to automate that, so I created a text expander snippet so it's not hard to type. Once I've gotten the URL in there correctly, there's a little gear in Feeder with a dropdown, so I can ask it, fetch the attributes for me. It then figures out the file type, which is usually audio slash MPEG for my show, and then it calculates that length and bytes that I mentioned earlier. Now, I forgot to mention there's one step that had nothing to do with Feeder, but becomes relevant to the story. I wrote a script that adds the ID3 tags to the file, which is necessary for podcatchers to understand the file. And then my little script also puts in my album artwork. I put the script in my menu bar of all my Finder windows along with the Libsyn droplet so I can drag and drop the file on my script before dragging it into the Libsyn droplet. Now, the reason I told you all of that is because evidently for ages, Feeder has had an FTP client built into it. It's not that dragging the file onto the Libsyn droplet is all that hard, but if I use the FTP service built into Feeder, I can drag the audio file into the feeder episode and it automatically calculates the length and the file file type right on the spot. And get this, Steve Harris, the developer of feeder, told me I don't actually have to add all the ID3 tags to the file and the album artwork anymore. I don't even need my text expander snippet for the URL because feeder enters it all for me automatically. So three automations and one entire application are completely unnecessary now with my new workflow. I will admit that I borked up the feed for Chit Chat Across the Pond the first time I tried this because I'd misconfigured feeder, but Steve Ferris very quickly showed me my mistakes, which, by the way, we both blame on the incredibly screwy way that Libsyn stores files. He also taught me a much easier way to experiment without messing up the real feed next time. I still borked it up a little bit. Some of you may see the name of Chit Chat Across the Pond in your podcatcher of choice with the word test in it, 
but I think it'll go away the next time I upload an episode. All of this preamble is a way of telling you how much I appreciate Steve and his work on the app. But I've been using it for 56 years now, and I've only paid him once. He never charged for the countless number of enhancements he put into Feeder over all these years, like adding that double-secret FTP tool I'd never used. But finally, Steve is going to let us pay him for all his hard work because he's just released version 4 of Feeder with some nice enhancements. The single biggest enhancement is that the logo is really pretty and modern now. Of course, I'm kidding about it being important, but seriously, it's a really cool logo and his old logo was looking as antiquated as I am. The interface of Feeder 4 is very similar to before with a left pane for all the feeds for all the shows you manage, which is actually six for me. The center pane is the list of episodes and then the right pane reveals the currently selected episode. But Feeder 4 is updated for macOS Big Sur and built for Apple Silicon. It's still, it's, it's very pretty and elegant but it's still familiar for people who use the older version. One of my favorite new features is the ability to preview your episode as podcast. What that means is when you view as podcast, it looks just like it will in the podcast app on iOS. It has a play button. It shows the length of the show. The episode notes are nicely formatted, and there's a pretty little link to the episode webpage. I haven't got my nerve up yet to try the biggest enhancement in Feeder 4. You can now collaborate on a feed with other feeder users. That sounds terrifying, in a way it is. Think about how much trust you have to have in someone to share what is literally the thing that connects me as a podcaster to you as the listener. But there are two people I trust with the feed, Bart and Alistair Jenks. They're probably more careful than I am. Well, not probably, they are more careful than I am. I trust them both implicitly. Without this new collaborative option, Bart and Alistair can always download the feed, edit it by hand, put it back up there, and when I get back from a trip, I can download the feed they changed, and I'm right back in sync again. But with Feeder 4, I can can share the feed with them. We can work on the same version with no download, upload, download, dance, which has more chances of operator error. As I said, I haven't gotten my nerve up to try it, partially because I'm chicken, but partially because I'm not going anywhere or doing anything adventurous but it could be useful for the future. The last big thing that is new about Feeder 4 is that you can sync your feeds via iCloud. Lately, I've been bouncing back and forth between my 2019 laptop and my 2016 laptop because the older one is on macOS Big Sur and I want to play with the new hotness. One of the reasons I like Feeder so much is because it's really fun to annoy Steve Harris. As I played with Feeder 4, I wrote him emails right and left about all the weird things I'd find, and I'd try to save, and it wouldn't let me, and then I'd close the window, and it would ask me to save. But here's the funny part. I was evidently beta testing for him when I thought it was the released version. He didn't tell me I was the beta tester. In any case, it took a bit of faffing about to get the iCloud syncing to work as expected. I mean, isn't that always the case? And I suggested an improvement that I think he's going to implement. When you toggle on iCloud syncing on Mac 1, everything is dandy because you're just pushing up what you've got. If you've never used Feeder on Mac 2, everything will also be dandy because when you allow syncing, all of the data will come down from iCloud, but now both Macs will stay in sync. But Mac number 2, in my case, was an old clone of Mac number 1. So it had the same feeds, but they were very much out of date and some consequential changes had been made. When I turned on syncing in Mac 2, there was a big orange button that said, use iCloud, and a little checkbox that said, merge with iCloud. That sounded swell. 
this point, I can tell you can all hear that minor chord of the soundtrack right now. You know, like when you're watching someone back into a room in a horror movie, you know this was going to go wrong, that it said merge. Of course, it turned into a dumpster fire of half duplicates. Rather than blame myself for being an idiot, not realizing that merging in my case was a very bad idea, I suggested the problem was the communication in that window. Luckily, Steve agreed after chastising me that I hadn't beta tested the iCloud syncing part for him before he went live with the new release. He's changing that window to have a big replace button and a big merge button, and the text above will tell you when to use replace and when to use merge. Hopefully, it will keep others from making the mistake I made. Remember, throughout all of this, I wasn't really worried because I can always just delete all of the feeds and download them again, but it would have been a bit of a pain to redo all of the server settings. Of course, I have them documented in a full good guide, uh, but, uh, but still, it would have been a pain. Steve stepped me through how to replace my entire feeder library from one of my three backups, so we got it all sorted. Even if you don't ever want to do your own podcast, I hope you've enjoyed me pulling the curtain back on how these things work, and maybe you know a little more about the technology now. Feeder 4 is $40 for new purchasers or $20 for an upgrade. You can buy it directly at reinventedsoftware.com or you can buy it in the Mac App Store. I actually chose to pay full price for it because Steve started this software in 2005 and I've only paid him $40 since I started using it. I sent Steve a note telling him I paid full price and how now I'll feel less guilty about annoying him so much. His answer was perfect. He wrote, oh, thanks. Normally I'd be giving you the license, but I do appreciate this. And now you can actually say to your listeners that you paid for it and how I, in turn, pay for it every day thereafter. And that's why I love Steve Harris and his app Feeder. You know, this is the point in the show where normally I would talk about ways you can support the show. I would talk about how you can become a patron or maybe you want to do a PayPal update. But you know what? Right now, I feel guilty asking for anything because if you've got some spare change, find a food bank to send the money to. Seriously, um, don't, don't add to my coffers. There's people who need it more than I do. Well, it's that time of the week again. It's time for Security Bits with Bart Boosh Shots. I'm coming to you from a freezing cold house. How are you doing today, Bart? Uh, I'm doing fine. Um, we, we had uh, a daytime high of one Celsius today. Okay, but it's not cold inside your house. Our furnace is broken, and I'm wearing a sweatshirt and, and sweatpants, and I've got a blanket, and I'm sitting on my hands and holding coffee intermittently, intermittently between the two. So, <laughs> Yeah, and you're also not... You, you, you're used to a California climate. You're, you're not built for this Irish-style <laughs> living. This is... Exactly. Well, not inside my house. I'm cold. <laughs> they can't get here till tomorrow, so I'll survive. But I'll, I'll whine the whole way. Absolutely. Hey, uh, I, will, I will have already talked about this, uh, but I had a great time on Let's Talk Apple yesterday. That was a really, really fun show. You, me, okay. and uh, Nick Riley. Yeah, it was really good good fun, actually. And, uh, you, know, not, you know, a good length show, good conversation. It was great to have you on. So uh, thank you. I, uh, I've told Bart before I made a concerted effort to not say yes every time he does the show because... We talk so much, I don't want it to become the Al and Bart show. It's got to be the Bart show, you know? So having your own voice, but I like to sneak in from time to time. Well, it's good to have you as a, as a special guest whenever you can. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, it, it was fun to have you on. 
Uh, I had lots of fun. But this isn't a retrospective on Let's Talk Apple. We are supposed to be talking about security. What do we got going today? A big show? Uh, no. Uh, my RSS <laughs> reader was very empty. If it wasn't for the fact that my RSS reader was really full when it came to Let's Talk Apple, I would have thought it was broken. But it's the same process, the same RSS reader. So it, it, obviously that's just what there was. Um, We have a small amount of follow-up on sort of long-running stories. Uh, We've been talking all year about the various social media platforms trying to sort of tackle abuses of their systems. And the next move in that direction has come from Twitter, where they're going to start warning you if you try to like a misleading tweet. So they've they've already started labeling the tweets as misleading. So now, and they've already started to make make you sort of stop and pause before you retweet. Well, now they're going to give you a little warning if you try to like something that they say is horse poop. Oh, that's interesting. I mean, that would be good. Yeah, so it goes back to, I think you and I were saying a few weeks ago that we like this sort of nudge mentality as opposed to, you know, thou shalt not. So it just seems like another positive step. You know, every hmm. little thing. I guess the other long-running story is that Facebook makes regulators cranky all over the world. South Korea's turn. They have fined Facebook $6.1 million for sharing user information without consent. Color me surprised. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Hey, I've got one other, um, and I'm, and I'm, you know, I try to stay completely out of politics, but we talk a lot about uh, exactly this, about misleading information and, and uh, people who are abusing the terms of services mm. of these uh, of these social media services. Um, there's an article in uh, both types of or all types of uh, news outlets um, that uh, Twitter is has confirmed reports that they may change the status of Donald Trump's Twitter account after he is done being president because of repeated violations of their uh, of their policies. And they have acknowledged that he's he's done that he's and, and people have called for Twitter to take it down. But unfortunately, it's in the public interest for us to know what he's saying and what he's thinking. So they've been leaving it up. But after he's done being president, that won't be the case. And they're seriously considering taking it down. That That's just kind of an interesting development. Well, if you think about their rules, the rules are basically thou shalt not unless thou art a public figure. Well, you know, if you cease to be president, that seems like a fairly substantial change in circumstance. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was just kind of interesting. They're... Um, you know, they have been more and more aggressive on marking his uh, the things when he says something that is uh, misleading or dangerous. Yeah. So uh, it'd be it'd be interesting to see if that does change, because I know people have been annoyed that he's been allowed to go against the policies that anybody else would get taken down for. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I definitely want to keep an eye out for in, in January. We shall see. Yep. All right. Um. Action alerts. Uh, just the one. Apple have recent, released an iCloud update for Windows folks. So if you're a Windows user who has the iCloud client installed, um, patchy, patchy, patch, patch. I didn't even know they had a client. It's an app you what install it? and then it does all the syncy stuff and takes care of your iCloud drive. Just like you have a OneDrive app, you would have an iCloud app. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. I always, I've always kind of wondered if people, obviously, gazillions of people have iPhones and Windows, but I have not got the faintest idea how that works since we don't do anything to make it work here. Yes. Yeah. Well, it used to all be done through iTunes. Like you used to do your, I, right, you used right. to do your calendar sync through iTunes, which obviously made so much sense. <laughs> 
Exactly. Well, yeah, and podcasts and all that. Exactly. Yeah. So, well, no, the podcasts and all the media is still through iTunes and Windows because they didn't split it out like they did uh, with Catalina. Oh, okay. But okay. iCloud is okay. split out, so you can sync your contacts calendars, you can have your iCloud drive without having to have iTunes. Okay. So, Interesting. You know, it, there it, had to be progress. something. I just never heard what it was. Yeah. iCloud for Windows. Yeah. Uh, worthy warnings. The United States Federal Trade Commission are warning uh, that there is an ongoing phishing campaign targeting Americans where the scammers pretend to be from Apple or Amazon support and they claim to be calling about a problem on your account or a problem with a recent purchase and basically try to get you to give them your username and password, which, of course, you should know is definitely not correct, or they try to get you to give uh, credit card details or whatever, which you definitely shouldn't do if some random person rings you up. So the standard advice is hang up the phone, go to the website, and make contact directly from a number you trust, not from something the spammers told you about. Yeah, my friend Pat Dengler, who's a uh, uh, Apple certified consultant, had a client get caught up in this, and by the time Pat got to her, she had given her uh, bank account information to the scammers. Now, luckily, she called Pat right away, and so Pat was like, uh, "So call your bank right now. Call them now. Hang up the phone. Call them right now." And she goes, "Oh, well, you know what? I think I'll go over there." She goes, "No, call them. Call them faster. You know, don't don't delay. Call them on the phone." And she's like, "Well, it's just a couple of blocks. I'll just walk over." And she's like, "No, no, 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 no. Call them." So I hope she called and stopped it before anything bad happened. Fingers crossed. Jesus, yes, yeah, scary stuff. Um. VPN Mentor, they they have a bunch of good security researchers on their staff, um, and they have an interesting post up uh, reporting. They found a Spotify scam. So basically, they found an unsecured database being run by sloppy criminals, um, which is a massive database of Spotify accounts. And what seems to have happened is that due to password reuse... They were basically checking passwords from other password breaches against Spotify to build up a database of working Spotify usernames and passwords. And it appears they were collecting those together either to sell to others to attack or to attack themselves. Uh, But since they didn't secure their database properly, VPN Mentor were able to inform Spotify, who were then able to put forced password resets on the appropriate people, etc. So... To, to to some extent, the, the worst of the danger has been mitigated, but the danger of the of anyone on that list being targeted for spear phishing remains very high, of course, because they, they have details of you, so they can make a convincing fish that looks like it came from Spotify. And, of course, it's a timely reminder never to reuse your passwords and to enable two-factor auth whenever you can. Maybe that's what you give people for Christmas, is uh, for or Hanukkah. Or Kwanzaa, you do it so that you can uh, or you help them set up one password or last pass so that it yeah. becomes easier. Yeah, you know, an hour of your time over Skype or whatever, setting, getting them up and running. Yeah, that's a good gift. Oh, it's a lot longer than an hour, Bart. Have you actually done it for anybody lately? I was going to say, now, I'm just remembering when I helped Dad set it up, and you're right, it definitely was longer than an hour. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but... I've talked about it before. My father-in-law is now 84, 85, something like that. And you have not met a bigger fan of 1Password in your life than that man because he uh, he has neuropathy in his hands. And so it's really hard for him to type. And the fact that he never has to type Type, passwords, 
he just it, and it's only getting better. It's just gotten much much better in version seven point seven. Yeah, it just you click in any password field, it goes, hey, you want me to open up one password? Let me just do that for you. Yeah. Let me get it done. I was going to say now you need to buy him a Mac with Touch ID, and then you'll never you'll never have to type again. You know, I, I actually wonder whether that might not work. Uh, neuropathy basically means he doesn't have any nerve feelings in his fingertips, so he can't tell when he's touching something. So, so touch things are actually sensor? much harder for him. Yeah, okay. now, Face ID would work, yeah, so but we touching need, We things. need Apple with the new M1 Macs to start doing the face ID thing on the Mac. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Which there's no technological reason not to. So, you know, if you can do it on the iPad, you can do it on the Mac. Get onto it, Apple. Um, Cyber News did an investigation of a Chinese company selling cheap routers um, and found they were backdoored and they actually discovered this in February and contacted the Chinese company and still had no reply yet Um, now rather unfortunately one of the biggest outlets for this company's routers is a small retail outlet you may have heard of called Walmart so okay. if anyone has bought a Jetstream router from Walmart, you need to take it, put it in the bin, and get yourself a secured router immediately. This thing is backdoored today and is being actively exploited in the wild. These things are part of botnets causing chaos all over the internet. Ugh. Yep. Uh, that, there should be laws. Yes. <laughs> Punishments yes. for yes. companies for something that bad. Um, and while Jetstream is by far the biggest outlet of this garbage, um, the same inner brains are also available on eBay and Amazon, rebranded as Wavlink, W-A-V-L-I-N-K. So if you have a Wavlink router, it needs to join the Jetstream routers in the bin because it is exactly the same. And oh, wow. This also applies to their Wi-Fi extenders as well as their full-on routers. Wow. So, on the one hand, well done, Cyber News, for the investigation. On the other hand, boo hiss to the Chinese company behind those two products. That's seriously not on. In terms of notable news, then, um, definitely the most dramatic story, which thankfully is all in the past tense. Google's Project Zero have released details about a Wi-Fi vulnerability in iOS, which they responsibly disclosed to Apple, and Apple patched... Back in March. So if you're running an iOS version 13.5 or later, you're grand. You have this patched. But before it was patched, it was a pretty darn scary vulnerability because it allowed an attacker within Wi-Fi range to get full system access on your iOS device without any interaction from you or any visual sign that anything had happened. So no weird error messages, no pop-ups, no app launching and quitting, zero visible sign that anything had happened, and zero interaction on your part, and someone within Wi-Fi range has full root access to your phone. So we're talking the classic coffee shop situation, right? You're on on shared Wi-Fi. Actually, did you have to be on the same Wi-Fi or just within Wi-Fi range? Just within Wi-Fi range, so not even on a shared Wi-Fi. So you're on a VPN and you would still be vulnerable. Yikes. But this is how it's supposed to work, right? Correct, yeah. So on the one hand, ooh, that's a scary vulnerability. On the other hand, the amount of people hurt by this is zero because Project Zero did really good research, informed Apple, Apple responded appropriately, Project Zero kept their mouth shut long enough for everyone to get safely patched, and now they're telling everyone what they found, and so everyone could learn. So this is textbook security industry working as it should. 
So you said this was iOS 13.5 or later. So if you've got a phone that can't be updated, you might be in a different situation. Well, I mean, there are so many known vulnerabilities in iOS that if you're on a phone that can't be updated, it should be in the bin next to the WAV link and the Jetstream routers. Yeah, I guess so. I sure know a lot of people running running phones that aren't able to be updated. And they have their most intimate stuff on them because of the most personal devices we own. And it's a security disaster. And I've been saying it for years, and I'm going to keep saying it. You can't run around with phones that are not patchable. I think, uh, you know, Lindsay and Nolan have a, uh, a couple of extra iPhone 10s that they were going to sell. I'm going to make them give one to my brother because he's on an iPhone 6, I think. Oh, quaint. Yeah, I don't know if iPhone 6s can be updated. I'll have to check that. Yeah, oh, I don't think, I think the SE, the original SE is as far back as it goes, which is similar looking to the 6, but I don't think the 6 is still, I I think the 6 isn't, it might still be a 32-bit phone. He was really worried he'd have to learn lots of new stuff. I said, no, you don't. It looks exactly the same. It's just, it's going to be face ID and you're going to be all pissed off because you're wearing a mask and you can't use it, but move on. (laughs) Are they all face ID or is the new iPhone SE, the new iPhone SE is a touch ID? Yeah, I'm not buying him a new phone. I'm talking about giving him an iPhone 10. Fair point, fair point. Yeah, no, no. Um, Actually, is that touch ID? No, no, the iPhone 10 is, is the one that invented this whole new paradigm. Okay, okay. It's revolutionary. That's why they skipped nine, because <laughs> they were changing everything so much. They went straight from eight to right, ten. Right, That's right. Um, that was an amazing phone, though. That's it's a great device. Yeah, yeah, that was a big, that was a big loop, leap. Yeah. Um, the only other piece of notable news I was able to find was that Twitter now support hardware keys like the YubiKey, etc., which is nice. Oh, okay. So you- Have you ever thought about getting one of those? Uh, I've gone further than thinking about it. Uh, you got one? Oh, he's pulling out his keychain. Which no one else can see, but... So that's the USB kind, USB-A kind. So is that... Yes, which means I'm not using... That doesn't work with your phone. No, so in my phone I'm using the uh, 2FA based off of Google Authenticator-style apps, which I'm using 1Password for. Uh, Right, right. But the hardware key is convenient for actually stuff like uh, GitHub it's great for, because that's something I really just do on my Mac. You know, I do find it interesting that the most secured thing on my Mac is GitHub. Yay! I, I, it's But it's like 12-factor authentication. It's like, show me your irises. Now give me your finger. What's your shoe size? You know, type in a code backwards that you mixed with a giraffe. You know, it's like, oh my gosh. And then I go to my bank and it goes, can we use SMS? <laughs> yes. uh, if I'm lucky, right? Um, well, thankfully, again, in Europe, we have regulations against that. So our banks all have to do modern authentication these days, which is great. So we, we get a nice little, we have to have a companion app. And without the companion app, we can't log in and it's great. Anyway, that's yeah, here that's there. Um, in terms of top tips, um, given, particularly given how much we're all working from home these days, um, a very nice article on Naked Security crossed my radar. There's nothing earth shattering here, right? This is... Home Wi-Fi security tips, five things to check. Right? None of this is news to, to us, Nusilla Castaways. But it's short, simple list that is perfect for sharing with family and friends. And it's no harm every now and then just to remind yourself that, you know, have I checked this recently? You know, so, you know, as I say, it's not earth-shattering, but it's a, it's a nice article, concise, clear, 
very shareable with friends. So it's got into my RSS reader, into that, or into Pocket, into that folder I keep called two for reference, which is where I keep all the things that I, are handy for sending friends and family from time to time. Is the number one thing checked to see if it's from Jetstream or Wavelink? Um, <laughs> and no, but it's bin. close. <laughs> Apply those okay. updates. That's what they've titled well, this is... one. Apply those updates. Okay, but this, this, uh, the Jetstream and Wavelinks were the ones that the first tip should be throw them away. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, second tip, um, check your encryption settings. So basically make sure you're on WPA2, not, not Nick and mm. WAP or something ancient. Uh, pick a proper password. Check who's on your network. You know, that, it always lists out the clients. And then the, the, the more difficult one of all, review your IoT devices, which is ah. definitely worth doing. Yeah, that's one thing I do really like about the, uh, the Eero is that it makes it really easy to see the devices and the names. If it's possible to glean it from the information given from the... the MAC uh, address. The, the NIC, the, for, yeah, from the MAC address, it'll be super obvious. It'll say, you know, Al's iPhone. The only problem with it is it's got a few too many false positives that it's, it'll tell you when a new device joins your network, which is great. But like every three days, Al's I, uh, Apple Watch Series 6 just joined the network. It's yeah, you don't need to keep telling me that. That's because so, Apple does uh, MAC address randomization. So you actually, you might want to decide. Yeah, but there was a, they, they said that it, on your home network, it wasn't going to do that or something. And I'm not, sh it's not always doing it, which is odd. I, I'll have to check into whether that's why it's doing it. But uh, yeah, I've seen it come and go. So I think uh, I'm going to jump in with something here yeah. next. I was listening to or watching uh, Tech News Weekly on the Twit Network with Micah Sargent and Jason Howell. And by the way, it's a really good show. It's it's once a week, and they have two or three really interesting guests to do a deep dive on a tech topic. So it's not it's not the up to the minute news kind of a mm -hmm. kind of a show, but it's a deep dive. And um, they had a gentleman named Thomas Smith who wrote an article entitled "A Gift Guide to This Holiday Season's Creepiest Surveillance Gadgets," <laughs> and uh, it's it's on Medium, and it's a it's an interesting article and discussion because he said he wasn't really sure whether he was writing this ironically or was it going to be useful. And uh, it's a great discussion. I recommend you go find uh, that episode. That would have been this previous week. Like, uh, ooh, I think it comes out on Thursday, so maybe the third or so of December. But anyway, in that conversation, he referred to the privacy not included uh, list on um the Mozilla Foundation puts together, and Bart, you said you'd heard about this before. They do this every year. Yeah, so this is so this or is sort of a service. This is a service Mozilla have been doing for a long time, where they they sort of give you a summary of the kind of popular holiday gift sort of gadgety doodads and how they do on privacy. And you know, sometimes it's a case of do we know anything at all? And sometimes it's a case of actually we know lots about it. So, you know, it, yeah, and it's... I, I really resonated to this because I expected when I uh, heard him refer to this that it was going to be a list. Mm. You know, it was going to be links and lists and reading and everything in it, but it isn't. It's really, really well organized. So across the top, it says all best of smart home, home office, toys and games, entertainment, wearables, health and exercise. So you can choose kind of a category. 
Yeah. But then below, I'm just looking at the all page, they show you little pictures of the of the things they're going to talk about. So in the upper left, I see a picture of the Jabra Elite 85T um, uh, earbuds. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so you've got all these pretty pictures and you can click on any one of these things and it'll tell you what they know about it. But the, the interesting thing is over in the bottom right, there's a little smiley face and it says not creepy. Yeah. And this is a crowdsourced uh, reaction to the device. So it, within each one of these, they tell you what's creepy about it, if there's anything creepy, but then you get a little slider where you vote, is this creepy or not creepy? So these are auto-sorted by that not creepy to creepy little icon based on how people reacted to what they read. Um, the other thing you could do is you could, there's a checkbox entitled privacy not included. And that's what's important about this is if you click on that, all of a sudden you get a completely different set of images. And then it's a bunch of creepy you know, devices that maybe have some problems in their, their uh, privacy policies. And you can scroll down to the very bottom and see what's the creepiest thing. And uh, so I wanted to grab a couple of these, if that's okay, Bart, and just kind of talk about what they said to get people excited. Yeah. So just uh, so before you do, because I've sort of been clicking around here. Um, what really jumps out at me when you go into the home category, so like, first of all, there is a search box, which is great. So if, you know, if you're thinking of a specific thing, you can just search for it, which is useful. And anything that doesn't have proper privacy, basically when the company doesn't tell you what it does with the data, it gets the privacy not included exclamation point, which is disturbing how many yellow exclamation points are on this page. There should mm-hmm. be none. Speaking of, you know, there should be laws about this kind of thing. Like the you know, you, you can't sell food without listing the ingredients. You can't. There's so many things in life. There's basic standards about what you have to disclose. Why Why aren't devices covered by basic standards? Like, come on. It's 21st yeah. century. Um, yeah. It, well, we could even start with that one. So if you start on the smart home uh, page and yeah. you check privacy not included, as you might expect, the creepiest on the list is the Facebook portal. And so let me, let me click on that. Yeah. So they give they give you a first is kind of an opening paragraph and it, and it's a little bit snarky. This one starts with let's be honest, Facebook has a terrible track record when it comes to protecting their users' privacy. Remember that record five billion dollar fine for privacy failures. Anyway, then in every one of these, it has a section that says what could happen if something goes wrong. So for you would expect that the Facebook portal probably has something terrible about it just just off the top of your head. Yeah. But right before that one is one a Tommy smart coffee maker. Well, smart coffee maker sounds great, right? You can automatically have coffee made. But the security, privacy and security on this one said they didn't know a lot about it. But what they do know is they may give your personal information to third parties for marketing and promotional services. And uh, another flag they said is the app that controls the coffee maker. So not the coffee maker itself, but the app that controls it asks for access to your phone's camera, microphone, and tracks your location. Yeah, <laughs> I, I'm looking at a. I don't know if it's the same coffee maker. I'm looking at the Hamilton Beach Smart Coffee Maker, mm. and I go down to biometric. So one of the sections is what does it? What data does it collect? Question mark. This coffee maker collects name, email, phone number, and address. That's already not good. Biometric voice recordings collected by Amazon. So this thing is a bloody. Amazon Echo Oh, it's got Alexa built in? Something like that in, my, in the coffee maker. How can you control your data? No mention of deletion of usage information via the privacy policy. So maybe, maybe not so much then, yeah. is what you're saying. <laughs> User-friendly privacy information. No. <laughs> <laughs> no. 
Yeah. Um, one of the ones I thought was really interesting, I'm not sure which subcategory it goes in. I found it under all, but um, have you heard of these uh, moleskine? I don't know how it's supposed to be said. Moleskine? I think moleskine, it's moleskine. Uh, uh, Smart writing set. So this is a little device, a little thing where you write your little notes in the moleskine uh, little, little device, and then it... Uh, immediately puts your your uh, notes that you write up onto into the app on your phone. And from there, you can edit and transcribe and organize and share. And this sounds really great. But then it says, every note you take, every word you make, they'll be watching you. Sing it with us now. <laughs> Holy cow, does this smart writing set come with privacy not included? First of all, we can't determine if they meet our minimum security standards, which is bad. Next, the privacy policy only covers their website. Not the pen or the app you upload all your notes to. And maybe worst of all, while they say you can request your data be deleted, the how to contact us section of the privacy policy doesn't seem to exist. So good luck with that. All this seems pretty awful for a pen that can take everything you write down and upload it to an app where all those brilliant ideas, juicy gossip, and handy phone numbers would live online. I'm going to take the slider and go to super creepy on that one. Yeah. I'm... I mean, mildly everything you write here because there's very few smart devices in my house. But one of them that is in my house is the Dyson Pure Cool Air Purifier, which is a. I saw that 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 one gets a. What did what did they not like about that one? It's purely Privacy the fact that there is no. So basically, they don't tell people what they do. So you know what could happen if something goes wrong? Probably not a lot, but we can't tell for sure. Dyson didn't answer our questions. So it doesn't have anything specific that they know they're doing that's bad. Yeah, it's basically, it, it's probably fine, but they're not telling us what they're doing, so we can't give it a thumbs up. And frankly, why not? Why not just have, like, the world's easiest privacy policy to write is, we don't collect anything and we don't do anything with it. Well, they, it does say, let's see, they may share limited personal data with social media platforms and third-party providers and analytic companies for marketing pur- purposes. So that's probably on the buying side. Yeah. But they said, is it possible this air purifier could tell from the contents of the air in your home that you've been smoking pot? Not likely, says Dyson. Pure Cool can identify general pollutants like smoke. It can't tell the chemical composition. Yeah, I think so, it basically measures the size of the particle. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So I, I don't know. That one doesn't make me. I'm, I'm going to put that one down in the not creepy category. It's not maybe creepy, not all the way what down. This is disappointing. And what I'm hoping yeah. one of the one of the things that this website is supposed to do it, it's sort of a two. Th- so on the one hand, it's a great tool for buyers, but on the other hand, it's mm-hmm. also a great tool for shaming manufacturers. Yeah, you don't want to be on this one. You're right. right. Dyson should not be there. Dyson are not. A fly-by-night operator. They are not the makers of cheap products. Oh, ripies are they not the makers of cheap products? Yes, it purifies the air very good. No, it is not cheap. Um, Dyson uh, yeah. should do better D- than this. I don't know anybody who's ever bought a Dyson product that later, after the check had cleared or the credit card bill had been paid, didn't say worth every penny. I am in that club um, because after years of swearing at my vacuum cleaner, I am now the owner of a cordless, full-length stand-up Dyson vacuum cleaner, the V10, if anyone cares. And uh, my darling beloved with his health issues, he has respiratory condition. His room is now perfectly pure of air. free. And ah. he can tell me a graph every day about how crappy the air has been and how much oh, the Dyson nice. has fixed it. 
I mean, I, so the, so he's got the purifier in his room, and then you vacuum with the HEPA filter version yes. of the Dyson stand-up va- uh, uh, vacuum. Yeah, and actually, it's interesting because the air filter shows that I can now vacuum the house without causing him trouble. Oh, so just stirring up the dust was would make it bad. In the past, we used to be the case of if I needed to do the vacuuming, I'd have to make sure to go up and make sure his door was closed tight. Sealed and put Sealed, exactly, towels around yeah. it for smoke. And wow. With the with the Dyson, no such problem. And the other thing that really like I used to change <laughs> the vacuum bag once every month or two. Mm-hmm. Well, my house hasn't changed. But <laughs> I have to empty that Dyson every single time I vacuum. Yep. And it is disturbing. It's disgusting. To me. It, well, it's on the one hand, it's brilliant. It's like, oh wow, yeah. all of this cruft is gone. This is all gone from my house. <laughs> I can knit a, a, a fourth pet out of what I get out of, of like one vacuum of my house yeah. with the Dyson. <laughs> so I look at it going, oh my God. And I never, now, I mean, it makes you want to vacuum more often. Yeah. Because you're like, wow, that was really gratifying. Yeah. So th- that is that is interesting. You know, I like to talk a lot about what metrics are good to collect and what metrics are stupid. And that's why I don't like sleep metrics because they only tell you the result. But you've got the you've got the air purifier that's measuring the content in the air and the device that you're using to change that. And so you've got the closed loop that you yeah. know you have fixed this problem. Precisely. And it's actually, it's really reassuring to be able to see when, you know, it's and it's just simple stuff like, should I open a window? Well, if the if the graph on the front of the air purifier has gone a disturbing red instead of a happy yellow or green, in Ireland we should open a window. I guess in California that really <laughs> depends on what's going on outside said window. Maybe maybe actually if the graph goes bad, it should close 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 everything close everything. <laughs> but you know what I mean. Well, because the state is burning down. Yes. If the if the AQI says that outside is worse than inside, leave the window closed. But if if the inside actually, is that better. makes that makes me want to get one of these. Honestly, I think they're if if they weren't so expensive, I'd have one in my room too. But I don't need one; I just want one, and they are not <laughs> yeah, cheap yeah. devices. This is the, yeah. Um, on on uh, one of the things I thought was really interesting, back to the Mozilla mm-hmm. uh, Privacy Not Included website, is um, I interviewed a company called iCuddle for an automatic litter box emptier thing. And I, you know, part of it was I just was looking for weird stuff to interview, um, but they hit the naughty list here, and it was pretty interesting what they said. So, it, like I said, every single device you look at, they give you a description, and then they tell you what could happen if something goes wrong. And it said this product looks and sounds pretty cool on the surface. They have a nice looking website. It even looks like you can purchase the product. The question is if you'll ever receive it. Some users have noted this might be a scam. On top of that, we weren't able to find a privacy policy for this product anywhere. There is no policy listed on their website. This is a huge flag. We warn this product comes with privacy not included. That's a pretty darn condemning wow. So Yeah, now you wouldn't you wouldn't think that the uh whether your cat litter is emptied or not, that shouldn't be like, do you really care if it's on the internet? But it says the app collects personal information like email, date of birth, and the app uses your camera and tracks your location. Why? So I would put no on that. In fact, maybe I should have put a link to this on our video. Now that I think about it, I'm going to make a note of that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that is that is astonishing. That is... Yeah, that's just... This is like a front for hoovering up data to sell it by the sounds of things. It, it might be. That's, that's might insane. be. Yeah. 
So anyway, I, I don't want to make the whole talk about it, but uh, if you just do a search for Mozilla Privacy Not Included, you'll you'll find this. And uh, but of course, there'll be a link in the show notes to this. But I, I thought that was pretty Ooh. interesting. I enjoyed going through this and and getting a handle on you know it, it's it's a lovely design of the of a website too. It's super easy to to navigate. You can see how we've been popping in and out and having fun in it, right? And the other thing is, uh, when you go to a page, it's sorted by least creepy at the top. So yeah. when you're at the very yeah. top of the page, the smiley face is like, you're fine. And as you scroll, the smiley face gets sadder and sadder and sadder. <laughs> and what's what's reassuring is that when I go to the health and exercise, my Withings Thermo is right there as the second item on the page. Oh, good. The thermometer. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's nifty. And the Withings Smart Body Scale is right there next to it. And if you're going to spend a quadzillion dollars on a Peloton, it's also <laughs> in the top row. Oh, there you go. Uh, AirPods Pro is up there in the top. The Apple Watch Series 6. Yep. Uh, and everything Amazon down at the bottom. Shock horror, yeah. <laughs> Amazon Halo uh, f- the uh, Amazon band is Mirror. at the bottom. Yeah, there's a scary device and a half. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, actually, actually, now remember, the, this is crowdsourced. The mirror is near the bottom in terms of the happiness, but uh, it does not have a problem with privacy included. Okay, that's something yeah Yeah. so they tell you what they're doing but what are they doing yeah oh we don't like that there's no way to tell when the microphone is on and in use Mm. and it doesn't detail what it does with the audio and video data Mm. yeah i think i see why people voted it into the into the sad face category yeah i think i just added a sad face anyway we should get back to business, but I I, th- I thought that was all really interesting, kind of fit into this category of stuff. That's a, like that's a about very here. good holiday season tip. So thank you for that. Um, cool. The only thing left. Oh no, sorry. There's one more thing for me, and then we're back to you again. Um, so th- this this is in the interesting insights section. Um, it's just a typically well-written New York Times article um, about how the U.S. used the Patriot Act to gather logs for website visitors. Basically, they found a clause in the Patriot Act, interpreted it very, very broadly, and hoovered up vast wedges of data. So uh, if you want to see how that's been happening, it is all explained by the New York Times. As I huh. It's an interesting insight, not a happy story, which means we need mm. our palates cleansed. And you were afraid that I had given you this tip but I absolutely had not. This is news to me, and I am now extremely thankful to you for adding a fun new podcast to my uh, weekly routine. Well, the reason I thought this might be yours was because the uh, it's eclectic. Uh, I can't say what this podcast is about. Um, and, and I tend to be all tech all the time, so I don't usually listen to things that are outside of that realm or eclectic in any way. I want to know what I'm going to get my mm. feed. But I have started to really enjoy Alan Alda, uh, who was the star of a show called MASH, Ask Your Parents, Kids, which oh, Steve and I happen um, to be rewatching. More recently, he was the he was in, um, oh, the one with the fake president, um, Sheen. I haven't seen him in anything, but I the West know... West Wing. He was, he was the he was in West Wing? not McCain. So in the last series of The West Wing, they run for re-election against a guy who's basically... It's John McCain, only we can't call him John McCain because this is a fictitious program. And he's played by Alan Alda. And he's basically the conservative who disagrees with the, the, the protagonist of the show, but is a good human being despite having a different opinion. Okay. And he plays um, that role I'm afraid superbly. you may still... You may still have to ask your your parents. That show went off the air 14 years ago, Bart. Oh, no! (laughs) 
Oh, that's depressed me for the day. Oh, well. <laughs> yeah, really. Well, so anyway, he was the star of MASH, but um, I haven't uh, described what the podcast is. The podcast is called Clear and Vivid, and it's, it is completely eclectic. He is interested in people, and he's interested in basically everything. So the just to give you an idea of the ones that I've uh, really enjoyed, he had Kip Thorne on explaining gravity waves. So Kip Thorne was one of the, the brains behind the LIGO system that, that was able to detect gravity waves for the first time just a couple of years ago. And Kip Thorne is a fantastic explainer, so uh, it, he's really good, of course. Mm. But Alan knows a lot of stuff about 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 physics so yeah. he's really good at asking questions about it um another one i really enjoyed was marlo thomas and phil donahue talking about the secrets to a happy marriage i know that sounds really odd but they have been married for something like 40 years and they uh wrote a book about the secrets of happy marriage not based on their own experience but on interviews with other people who've been married for a long time so they interviewed 40 couples and they're people like um ron howard and uh, Viola Davis, and uh, oh, I forget who else. They listed a whole bunch of them, but they're constantly quoting that. I definitely want to read this book because it sounds really, really interesting. Um, he interviewed uh, Clara Souza Silva on the possible discovery of phosphine on Venus, which may be an indicator of life. And she is a spectacular uh, at explaining how they detected it, what they detected. Now, there's been some discussion of exactly what was detected because there were some problems in the data they got from the Alma telescope, which have been revised. So it's not as good of an indicator of life as they had when she recorded this. But she's fascinating and he knows a lot of stuff in it, too. So uh, on this topic. And then when, uh, one was Alan Zweibel on how to make funny people funnier. He's a he's a comedy writer. He was a stand-up comic, but he write he wrote jokes for famous comedians. And he was hilarious and interesting and funny. So if that gives you an idea of how varied and eclectic the different conversations are, but it's all Alan just being amazing at being Alan and, and interviewing interesting people. Even his show titles are fun. I'm just scrolling through the list here. Trumpty Dumpty Wanted a Crowd. Or Wanted a Crown <laughs> is his interview with John Lithgow about John Lithgow's new book of satirical verse. Yeah, yeah. By the way, he's on like his third issue of that bo- of those uh, of those poems. And John Lithgow, actually, John Lithgow is how he pronounces it. And uh, I, yeah, I love that one too. That one was that one was really interesting. Yeah, the, the Kip Thorne one has a great. I presume it's about gravity waves. Kip Thorne listened, and yes. the universe chirped. Yep. There's a bunch of physics ones. Steve found a couple of others that were interesting in there, but he's also got one called Clear and Vivid Science, but these three really good physics ones are not in there for some huh. reason, so I'm not quite sure. But Actually, if you can't find something, a right. topic you'd find interesting in this list, then you, whoever's listening that thinks that, we don't have anything in common. Yeah, I'm just looking through here. There, like, There's something here for everyone. Um, uh, Brian Green is a grateful collection of particles. Brian Green's fantastic. I know Steve is a, a big fan of his. How to interview More an physics. octopus. How to interview an octopus? Yep. Oh, there's one on why do, why do um, mosquitoes bite you? It's a woman who oh. does research into mosquitoes. Betty White and Alan Alda fall desperately in love. Well, that one's getting downloaded. Oh my gosh, I gotta go find that one. Sorry, we, 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 can't, uh, we can't keep going with the podcast. Yeah, We're too busy the, now. The, the, the wonderful thing is that the scroll bar is tiny on this. I have so much enjoyment to catch up on. Yeah. Ooh, yo-yo bar. 
Oh yeah, okay. <laughs> Folks, you are going to find something in here. Doesn't matter yeah. what you like and what you don't like, you are going to find something in here. This is amazing. Thank you, Alison. Well, poker can teach us about life. You know, I mean, there's, there's, it's, it's crazy so much. Yeah. I'll tell you, there was only one I didn't enjoy. Okay. And that was, um, he was talking to Loretta Swit, who played uh, Major Houlihan, and uh, Mike Farrell, who I think was uh, Trapper uh, on, on MASH. And uh, it wasn't good at all because she would not stop talking. He would ask uh, uh, Mike Farrell a question, and then uh, she would answer for him. And I was like, well, I want to hear him, too. So I actually stopped listening to that one. But uh, of all of them, that was the only one. So I, I've really, really been enjoying it. Yeah, but I think that probably wraps us up here, Bart. What do you think? I think it does. But that's what a what a what a great way to end. And that, that you know, there's going to be a lull in Chris in podcasts over the holiday season. Yeah, that's just been filled. That's just caved in <laughs> completely. Problem solved in one one fell swoop. Thank you. By the way, it's really good that we do video now. I could tell that Bart was still looking at the list. His head was down and he was scrolling and looking and adding adding episodes. And that's why I just called him back with, so Bart, I think we're almost done. Yeah, I, I'm lost in that's how good this gonna take. I'm going to spend quite some time scrolling through that list because it goes back to 2018. So there's a lot of, a lot of fun to pick up in there. Anyway. Very yes. good. So now that we are done with the security news, as little of it as there was, the important thing to remember, as underlined by Apple patching uh, iOS so promptly when they were told about a problem, is to always remember to stay patched so you stay secure. Well, that is going to wind us up. I got to tell you, uh, you really want to come to the live show. I, and, I'll, and I'll tell you why. Tonight, Steve was talking during the live show uh, to the audience in Discord about how... Uh, Shai Yamani had posted an article about the making of the song, The Girl from Ipanema. And he, I asked Steve to sing it. Steve wouldn't sing it. I hummed it. People typed in some things. And somebody, I don't know, maybe it was my idea, maybe Steve's, I forget, suggested that Shai Yamani actually sing the song. And Shai said, okay, give me a minute. Let me look up the lyrics. So we piped Shai into the live show, Walking His Cats, which is a whole story unto itself, and he sang into his cell phone while walking his cats half a country away from me and uh, into the uh, into the live audience, and we got to hear him sing. So if you don't come to the live show, you just miss stuff like that. So uh, I'll say it one more time. You want to go to podfeet.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time, and that's the kind of great stuff you can hear. Unfortunately, it wasn't recorded on the YouTube video for technical reasons. But anyway, don't forget to send in your dumb questions, comments, and suggestions. You can do that by emailing me at allison at podfeet.com, and you can follow me on Twitter at podfeet. And uh, I'm going to skip over the uh, calls for money because you're going to send money to a food bank. But if you want to join in the fun of the live show, I said you can go to podfeet.com slash live. If you want to join our Slack community where we got a lot of fun stuff going on, podfeet.com slash Slack. And if you don't want to join our Facebook community, that's podfeet.com slash Facebook. And I want to give a big shout out to Kevin, who hasn't been with us in the live show for a little while here, but he will be back soon. He is mending well, finally, and uh, we all miss him. Thanks for listening, and stay subscribed.